this Arab relations with Dr. Anthony and Pat Mancino and the, and the team, and not only for their congratulations on their 28th annual policymakers conference, uh, but inviting the U.S. Chamber to be a part of this. And uh, certainly want to welcome our distinguished uh, panel and appreciate them taking the time out of what a number of busy days to be here with us uh, in teeing up our panel. As Dr. Anthony mentioned, business investment and developmental dynamics in Arabia and the Gulf. I just wanted to um, very briefly mention at the U.S. Chamber, um, we represent the interest of about 3 million American companies of every size and sector. Uh, but interestingly, while we're known in this town oftentimes for what we do on the domestic agenda uh, with Capitol Hill and the members in the White House, uh, the fact is the international division of the U.S. Chamber is actually the biggest part of the chamber. And the Middle East uh, division within international is actually the biggest in terms of corporate engagement. And that largely reflects uh, the interest of where we see U.S. businesses going, um, oftentimes also where the challenges are. Uh, we uh, like to engage vigorously uh, when there are those challenges. And I know we were asked to make some policy recommendations. And I, and I do have to say, Dr. Anthony, we love that. We always come in hand um, with a lot of policy recommendations. And I want to mention, as we look at uh, the, the Gulf countries and Saudi Arabia in particular, you know, we from the chamber completely understand and appreciate the vision, uh, Vision 2030 and all the different vision plans, the attempt to uh, move toward economic diversification, uh, grow um, non-oil revenues and GDP. And we know that to do so, to have a more innovation-based economy, that there's some really particular uh, policy recommendations that we would like to share and that we do regularly share with those in uh, key positions in government. So I'm not going to go into everything, but I do want to say I know the last panel talked about IPO um, at the Chamber. While we're certainly interested in that, we're very interested in IPR, intellectual property rights. If you're going to have um, a robust, uh, innovative economy and an ecosystem that encourages research and development and attracts that type of foreign investment, and those innovative economies, be they in life science, be they in digital, uh, be they in renewable energy, you have to have a robust intellectual property regime uh, that protects that. Um, and we would encourage all the countries, uh, not only in GCC, but across the Middle East, uh, to work toward more robust intellectual property regimes that would reflect, protect those intellectual property rights. We have a whole litany of other uh, recommendations that I will share for the record, as they say, on uh, digital economy, on autonomous vehicles, on artificial intelligence, uh, all of these very exciting new spaces uh, as those countries work toward economic diversification. Um, we're very excited to have a, a great panel with us. We have two speakers, and, I, and, uh, and, and Dr. Gant, I think you'll provide some comments and reaction after we hear from our two speakers. Uh, but first up, I think everybody has in their, in their programs their biographies, so I'm not going to do an elaborate introduction but I would first like to welcome up uh, Dr. Matt McClellan um, to hear from him, and then we'll move uh, to our next speaker after that. Please join me in welcoming Matt. So, for those of you who happen to know my wife, she's Syrian, and an Emirati friend of mine uh, said one time, so you're married to a Syrian woman? I said, yes, I am. I said, yes, she's from Aleppo. He said, one of the challenges in your life, didn't you? So, of course, being the good husband, I turned to her when I was asked to speak, and I said, what do you think I should speak about? 
she's been speaking about two minutes and said that. If I go over, please don't tell her, please. So, as I looked at this, though, the, the title business investment and development dynamics in, the, in Arabia and the Gulf, it took me back to April 4th, 1968, significant for, four, for three reasons. First, it was my 12th birthday. Second, uh, we learned that Martin Luther King had been assassinated and being 12 years old and having spent half of my life abroad, I didn't even know who he was, just that it was making all of the front pages of the newspapers. And third, we were standing in Rome Airport. We were supposed to fly to Port Harkin, Nigeria, fly heads um, uh, energy uh, or oil services firm. And he was going to open the office there, and we were going to live in, in Port Harkin for the next several years after having done the same thing in, in Germany and Austria. And we got word, we tried to check in for the flight that the Civil War had broken out in Nigeria, and the flights were all canceled. Couldn't go to Nigeria, and they didn't know how long it was going to last. So my dad sent a telegram back to the company headquarters. Remember, this is 1968. Sent a telegram to Houston to the uh, home office of Weatherford, which at the time was a family-owned business, now a conglomerate, and, and asked um, what they thought he should do. As we were standing there in the airport, and the little louvers were turning, showing you. Where the flights were going, what time, what date, etc. He looked up and he said, Tripoli. I think Occidental Petroleum is doing something there. And so in his telegram, he said, What about if we go to Tripoli instead of to Port Harkin? And the next day, the telegram came back saying, Yes, go ahead. We wired money and went down and bought the tickets. And on April 6th, we flew to Tripoli. No contacts, no mobile partner, nothing, just the, the wild chatter energy mentality that existed at the time where you went and made it up as you, as you went. And, and again, as I was looking at the subject of this, the last 40 years, 50 years since then, that Libya could have been something much more than it is today. It could have easily outdone the demise of the world in the development of the infrastructure. It could have rivaled uh, Beirut and Lebanon and its culture and history and, and all the things that, that these cities and countries are, are known for. And yet, within 12 months after arriving, Mr. Gaddafi took over, and it made life very difficult for us. My parents had depressions to put us in a local Libyan school did that for four and a half years before we finally left as it got more difficult for Americans in Libya. But if you think about Libya as a case study for business development, uh, investment and developmental dynamics, it's one of the basket cases. And we should use Libya as a case study to learn what not to do and, and how we can do things differently in the Middle East, in Arabia, more success stories. And so my comments when uh, when we get to the question and answer, I'll talk about some investment opportunities, the business environment in, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia and other places. Let me just say that uh, when John Pratt asked me to come speak and I got the invitation from Dr. Anthony 
took me back again, a little history lesson, back to August, uh, mid-August mid of 1990. Iraq had just invaded Kuwait, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, General Gray, who I worked for, asked me to go speak to a group of journalists, Congress people, and, and others. And I got there, and they said, and the, the other speaker is Dr. John Buchanan, who I had spent the entire weekend rereading a lot of the publications that uh, Dr. Anthony had done. And, and so I was prepared. I had an instant of one page, and I was ready to go. And they asked Dr. Anthony to speak first. He did. I just slowly checked everything off of my one page. And then they said, Matt, what do you think? And I think Dr. Anthony summarized it very well. Thank you. summary. Um, I'd next like to look right up to the podium. Uh, Dr. Turkey, Isal Rashid, uh, and I know he's got a presentation, and we'll turn the podium over to you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
derail the GCC government from their strategic capabilities. And Bahrain was the most effective, most affected uh, country out of the uh, Arab Spring. Why did it happen? Many people, including myself, believe the poverty, lack of particip participation of the civil societies. What are the challenges facing the Gulf state? It's empowerment of women. And I mean real empowerment of women, not uh, cosmetics uh, changes. Public finance, security challenge, government challenge, and economic challenges. When you want, if you cannot measure it, it doesn't exist. And you need to measure the government performance. I use those six uh, index of measurement. And as you could see on the voice and accountability, Saudi Arabia, it went up from 3.4 to 5.9. Kuwait, it went up from 2.28 to 30. Uh, the political stabilities, uh, Kuwait went up, and same as uh, Saudi Arabia. So these are the index which is I depend on measuring the performance of the uh, government. And these are those uh, index. I'm not going to read it for you. I'm sure you can read a lot better than I am. To summarize what I want to say here is the challenge being oil economy, the leader there understand how volatile it is. Uh, it gives a false uh, oil income or rent a state or natural resources. It gives a false feeling of confidence and sometimes it gives the illusions of power. You really think you are very powerful. In reality, you are not. Uh, they know they, could, they have to diversify their economy. This is what's been going on for what, 30, 40 years of all the GCC. But let's look really of what's happening. Are they really diversifying their economy or not? If we look at the data here, the percentage of oil rent of the GDP, you could see in Bahrain, it's actually went down. If you look at Kuwait, it's actually went up. If you look at Oman, it went down. If you look at Qatar, it went almost 50% from 29 to 14. If you look at Saudi Arabia, it went from 27 to 23%. UAE, it went from 14% to 13%. This is the actual uh, figures. So, where do we go uh, from here? Uh, I think strategies is by participation of all the stakeholders. If the stakeholders are not fully participating, there is no success on any strategies. They have to invest in the human resources, in non-oil sector, and keep the knowledge. Now, what's the price of your faith? Because always, if you do anything, there is a consequences 
side there. I really want to know more about this topic that I want to talk. I mean, I did talk about it. You could uh, read my book. It's available in all the uh, international uh, outlets. Thank you. Thank you. 
that's why some of these students they started to look for business opportunities and employment in the wonderful uh, GCC countries. The second, which I think it is very helpful to appreciate and understand that I would offer the proposal to national universities in the United States to create such a program because really when you combine academic work along with visiting countries, uh, that creates interest. The second point that I'd like to deal with, which is one of my passions for the last 30 years, and I uh, structure every year a conference dealing with several funds, which is the first to the best of my knowledge, an academic institution dealing with sovereign wealth funds. Uh, last week, we had our sixth uh, conference, and next year in October, we will have our seventh. And we are always blessed by having Dr. Anthony as a keynote speaker uh, in these conferences. So just to uh, alert us about what do we mean by sovereign wealth funds, because there are so many of them. Last count was about 116 of them. But the sovereign wealth fund, according to the IMF, is defined as a special purpose investment fund or arrangement owned by the general government. Sovereign wealth funds are commonly established out of balance of payments, surpluses, official foreign currency, and receipt resulting from commodity exports. End of quote from the IMF. The DCC, ladies and gentlemen, esteemed guests, they own 33% of the general sovereign wealth fund in the world. It's about uh, the total number of the sovereign wealth fund in the world is about $7.6 trillion. The DCC owns 33% of that, and again, what is misunderstood in the world, we always talk about Norway as number one. That's not true. The UAE, because they have about four different sovereign wealth funds, the UAE owns $1.1 trillion worth of sovereign wealth funds. That's number two after China. Obviously, we have Kuwait, uh, $592 billion, Qatar, 3.8 and Saudi Arabia 320 billion. But mind you, we have been hearing about the 5% of Aramco and Transportes that will be equivalent to about $2 trillion. So we are waiting for that exciting announcement from Saudi Arabia, which will be great, a great uh, uh, offer to the uh, fund capabilities. So, Transport Gallery proposed that uh, the GCC sovereign wealth funds consider joining forces in acquiring some assets that are in compliance with their asset management limitation and uh, focus by technology, infrastructure, and others in accordance with their plan. And what is interesting here is that when they combine efforts, not necessarily in all aspects, but when they go after a certain asset, combining their effort is going to provide uh, them with a high competitive advantage in terms of acquiring these assets. And I don't have to tell you, but I hope you 
reconcile uh, soon because it is to the benefit of the U.S. as well in terms of investment. Third and finally, uh, I'm fascinated about the style of Prime Minister. And I'll tell you frankly that the U.S., unfortunately, we are behind the U.K., France, Luxembourg, in the area of alternative finance, which is the style of finance. Esteemed guest, it is $2.6 trillion subsector. And it is growing at 15% per annum. And two basic features of a standard finance. One, no interest. And His Royal Highness Prince Tripil Faisal yesterday reminded us uh, when he was talking about Saudi government offering loans to their citizens with no interest. And by the way, it is in the Quran. No riba, no interest. And the second aspect of Islam and finance, which is really common sense, it is based on profit loss sharing. So the two parties can share profit and losses. Because in our conventional system, there is always one party who bears the risk, the borrower. And I'll tell you frankly, uh, when we talk about standard finance, most people don't know this, but our beautiful city center here in Washington, D.C., is financed through standard finance by the bank. Standard finance is not for Muslims only, it is for humanity. It's for humanity. And I always argue about this because when people talk about the standard finance, they will say, well, gee, in the United States we have less than 3 million people, Muslims. I say you are forgetting the practical fact that Islamic finance is for everybody. And here I am going to uh, just propose that in the U.S., especially in the U.S. government, they need to have a closer look at the standard finance. Because I'll tell you frankly, I talk with people, I lecture, I speak at conferences. Lots of people, they don't have a clue about the standard finance. And we need to focus on that. Specifically, that we are having problems with infrastructure financing. I don't have to tell you how many bridges and roads in the United States are in desperate need of finance. And we started finance, we developed something called, has been developed called Sukuk. Some people translate that to Islamic bond. It is not bond, it is ownership. And consequently, again, lots of people don't understand or they don't care about that here in the United States of America, the Office of the Controller of the Currency issued a Sharia compliant Ijara leasing, which is allowed in the United States. But unfortunately, when I talk to our bankers from the Gulf, they say, oh, it takes a long time and we want it fast and what have you. And I have been in the last year or so working very hard with a couple of banks in the area to encourage them. Established the first 
rapid finance operation in Washington, D.C. So I need your help and prayers for that. Again, as my distinguished chair mentioned, uh, I took the initiative back in 2014 to offer the first Islamic finance course, followed by another course, which is dealing with Islamic banking and stock market and support. And finally, with the help of God and the American University Management, I managed to introduce the first graduate certificate in Islamic finance in the USA. We are very proud of that. And again, I can't do that without support from my dean and from my president. Esteemed guests, out of passion, I established my own American Center for Alternative Finance. It's called ACFAF. So before April 15, I need your contributions. And it is tax deductible. Uh, so these are my three recommendations. To conclude, one is dealing with education. You have to take the young students, American students, who are going to be the policymakers, to visit the GCC, following the steps of Dr. Anthony. He has been doing that for years. Number two is the question of sovereign wealth fund. You have to pay attention to the sovereign wealth fund. It is very powerful, and we have to use it for a good cause. Third is Islamic finance. And I'll be available for any questions. I have lots of small brochures that I carry with me every day, along with my business cards. Once again, Dr. Anthony and the National Council, thank you for the privilege and the honor of being with you today, and esteemed guests. Thank you for listening. I'm not sure if I covered the seven, oh, seven minutes or I still have a minute. Thank you very much. Now, I wanted to ask before, in order to allow the speakers to uh, add what they might have if they had another uh, half minute, uh, the questions again are educational themselves, uh, and the speakers are free to compound them, overlap any, and ignore them or prioritize them, or even comment on the relevance of a particular question. I'll copy them all, then you choose which ones. How has been uh, keep your uh, response to the diminishment of subsidy systems in GCC countries impacted regional economies. How does Islamic banking interact with global financial, financial and investment trends? How might a brain drain from the Arab region be decreased in nature and extent? How can Arab countries absorb excess educated talent? How have crises in Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and Libya impacted these issues? How can Arab governments incentivize the business community to mitigate abuse of migrant labor populations? How can the United States help Arab economy? 
toxic environments, therefore entrepreneurs and small businesses, including accessibility of capital, eradication of bureaucratic obstacles, and business-friendly legislation, such as enhanced bankruptcy laws and systems. How can the United States and Arab states alleviate the strain of refugees on host countries' education and health care sectors? How can the banking sector in some Arab countries be strengthened to enhance aid and economic development? How would one assess the prospects of the successful implementation of the proposed Arab Customs Union and the subsequent goal of establishing an Arab common market? How can the Arab region prioritize making investments that are sustainable? How can policymakers balance the focus on sustainability between formal laws and institutions and informal conceptions and knowledge? Next to the last, how do free zones contribute to economic growth and reduce unemployment? How might one characterize the implications that Arab countries are subject to these of minimal or non-existence? Given the GCC focus on economic diversification and expansion of alliances, especially on agriculture, for self-sufficiency partially, uh, where do you see a growing economic partnership at, at all between GCC and Latin America growing, especially with Brazil being the largest exporter of halal meat? and the Dubai Global Business Forum being held in Panama every year. Um, and with regard to Islamic finance, how might the 2008-2007-2008 liquidity crisis, international housing mortgage financial crisis, have been affected one way or the other, better or worse, had Islamic uh, banking or predominant role for Islamic banking in the United States of America, which is blamed for having instigated that worldwide crisis more than any other country. If you can follow the children's remark. Well, Dr. Anthony, uh, two minutes each for all those good questions. So uh, I'll basically turn to the panel, and if, as Dr. Anthony said, Two minutes, uh, pick your question uh, or two. And if we can keep it to a two-minute re- response, come back, we'll start with you. Okay. Um, first of all, some of the countries, and I'm treating the United Arab Emirates as a country, even though it's seven individual states. Uh, the UAE is experimenting with a new FDI law, foreign direct investment law, that will allow up to 122 sectors, foreign companies to come in and set up onshore without a local partner. Now, that may seem counterintuitive given the fact that we want to build up the, the local population, but they've also instituted uh, the ICT fund that will help bring money to young entrepreneurs, particularly in the uh, ICT fields. Uh, Khalifa University also has instituted 14 new research centers with 10 to 15 faculty each and are helping push 
into each of those research centers and three research institutes dealing with uh, uh, renewables, um, hydrocarbons, and uh, fourth platform technologies. They're also, they have a, a think tank, a real think tank there, to look at the future and decide what jobs will be needed and create the courses and programs now to educate the youth. Dr. Turkey will go in the, in the order of the speaking. So, if you have questions, uh, please uh, choose your passion and uh, be prepared for two minutes. There's a lot of questions here, so which one do you think I should pick? You're the moderator. Um, maybe if you can speak to the continuing the theme of economic diversification that you were talking about uh, in your presentation. And I think several of the questions touched on that. So, uh, maybe kind of summarize your thoughts. On that challenge and opportunity moving forward in two minutes. And yes, I should say everybody knows there's a lot to do also with agriculture. And there are a couple of questions pertaining to that. No one else has focused on that. Well, the one close to my heart, and that's the one I teach and I practice, which is the whole of agriculture to enhance security, alleviate poverty, and promote economic growth. I do believe the best way. Concentrate on agriculture, whether it's either industrial agriculture or social agriculture, to uh, alleviate poverty and promote economic growth, especially in the rural area. I would like to bring the attention that is in uh, in 2016 or 2015, 152 countries have signed an agreement uh, on the 17 United Nations 17. Sustainable development goals, and every country has to make his own uh, visions that it has to be achieved by 2030. And the United Nations have developed some indexes to measure those kinds of progress. Saudi Arabia and other countries have made their visions, which is it will complement the master plan's visions of the United Nations 17 development goals. G20s, which is it will take place in Saudi Arabia in November, and actually within this month, Saudi Arabia will be the president of the G20 uh, gathering on next November. Uh, diversifications of the economy. Uh, first, you have to define that is when a country is uh, have the natural resources. A lot of people they call it the, the Dutch disease. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that term, but relying on one source of income that makes it extremely difficult for any countries to get out of this disease and to go to diversify their economy. Their society, they want a lot of income and they don't want to do any work or hardly any. So, then with that kind of attitude, how could you really get out of this subsidies because there is a limit. You reduce subsidies, you would increase unrest. And, you know, the Middle East is already... Anybody want to talk about Saudi Arabia, you have to keep three in mind. Number one, it's the Qiblet al-Muslimin. There is one billion people five times a day. They go pray there. They put the direction of Mecca. Number two, it's the central banks of the oil in the world. And number three, we are in a very 
60% under the poverty line, 70% are youth, 1 million people every